Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Tech Triumph, Alphabet, and Microsoft earnings soar. Me model, Robinhood shares plunge as retail trading disappoints and continuing criticism. NBA star Enes Kanter tackles Nike over Chinese slave labor. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to an electric and supercharged first move today, motoring us through the next hour. The Hertz CEO, Mark Fields, and the Uber CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi, who've both had a busy week. The car rental firm announcing it's buying 100,000 Teslas. Now the two CEOs are tying up to make Musk's motors available for Uber drivers to rent. Yes, stick with me. And tackling rental car resales. Hertz is also announcing a deal with online car giant Cavana. We've got all the details on that and the explanation coming up. We also have a tank full of earnings to digest today too and the Dow and the S&P are charging up after hitting fresh highs on Tuesday. The Nasdaq closer to a fresh record after Microsoft and Alphabet posted huge sales gains late Tuesday. It's cloud and advertising powering their results. Twitter also rising pre-market though too, assuring investors that Apple's new privacy policy is having a quote, modest impact. We'll discuss all the details. In the meantime, it's a more cautious day in Europe and across Asia. Hong Kong falling some one and a half percent. The stock market there. Washington's decision to ban China Telecom from operating in the United States, too, citing national security concerns, could put further pressure on U.S.-Chinese relations. Just another signal coming from the U.S. there. And a bold call, too, from J.P. Morgan saying India's bond market could see overseas inflows of some $25 billion. Now that India is included in J.P. Morgan's very own global emerging market bond index, China's inclusion in the index triggered a similar cash flood. So that's the comparison there. And high voltage returns for India's main stock index to the Sensec up some 27% so far this year. Wow, look at that performance. And speaking of electrifying, let's get right to our drivers and big tech's high wattage results. Both Alphabet, the parent of Google, and Microsoft beating Wall Street expectations. Paula Monica joins me with all the details. The year-on-year comparisons here are pretty astonishing, which I think you would expect given where we were this time last year. But we're talking revenues of $110 billion combined. Wowzers. Microsoft and Alphabet are two, of course, of the tech juggernauts that are helping to dominate the NASDAQ and leading this stock market to those record levels that you alluded to earlier in the show, Julia, I think what's really noteworthy is that Microsoft in particular, the cloud momentum is so stunning. You're talking about 50% year over year revenue growth for that business. And it is obviously a validation of the strategy of CEO Satya Nadella to transform Microsoft into a company that we all knew as being one where we would just go to a store or, or download software, uh, you know, their operating system, Windows and Word, et cetera. But this is really not Bill Gates Microsoft anymore. It is clearly a cloud leader. And that is why that company in particular is having uh, you know, such strong performance and the stock is doing very well also. 
Yeah, I saw one of the analysts out there saying, how much better can this get? The best revenue growth at Microsoft in seven years. I think your point about this having moved on actually from Bill Gates is a is a pretty important one. Um, if we move on to Google, though, and look at their um, cloud computing initially, um, that missed expectations. It's lovely to make $5 billion worth of, um, of uh, revenues and uh, still don't meet expectations. They're looking at growth there, I think, of 45% year on year, Paul, which was amazing. But what was powering their search results for me actually was was most interesting. Um, shopping and travel restarting. Searches for open now near me four times higher year on year, but the geographical split of that and the mix, very uneven. Yeah, I think that uh, Google, like many other tech companies around the world, is seeing this kind of choppy recovery as Delta variant COVID fears persist. And that is going to be something that I think will be an issue going forward. The search revenue, of course, is very significant for Alphabet, and that is helping to boost the company's overall growth. You did have a little bit of a disappointment with the cloud growth, and that could be in part due to the competition from Microsoft as well as Amazon with AWS. YouTube uh, revenue was also still very robust, but the growth was a little disappointing. And like many other social media companies, they did allude to those Apple iOS privacy changes, just like Facebook and Snapchat have done as a potential reason for a bit of a slowdown in growth there. But make no mistake, Google is the best performing FANG stock this year. It's up about 60%. So it's not really struggling in any stretch of the imagination. And the stock isn't down that much pre-market this morning. So investors might be slightly disappointed, but it's hardly a major setback for Alphabet. Yeah, I was going to say, I was just looking at all the comparisons there. YouTube ad revenues up 40% year on year, Facebook 35% year on year, Twitter 37% revenue increase. It's lovely when you make a a growth in something like the cloud computing at Google and it's 45% year on year and you're disappointing what clearly seems to be great expectations. We'll say no more. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. A crypto trading slowdown is costing Robinhood in the pre-market to trade. The trading app shares fell below July's IPO price of $38. That's after the retail breaker reported lower than expected revenues in Q3. Anna Stewart joins me now. They did have a great first half of the year. I think that um, has to be said at this stage. But what we saw, obviously, in the quarter for crypto was a decline in price. And with it came a decline in general trading activity. And, of course, that hits the bottom line for Robinhood. Yeah, and I think there was an expectation for some sort of slowdown, given two-thirds of the revenue in the second quarter was attributed to Dogecoin, which is clearly off its highs. But I think these numbers have really shocked investors and even analysts looking at the notes this morning. It wasn't just the decline in active users. As you say, it's also the decline in revenue per user. And then there was the fact that the executive team are really expecting just more of the same next month, flat uh, user growth and so on. So, um, I think that's a shock. I think it's not been helped maybe by some of the executive comments this morning, both in interviews and in the analyst call saying that really, uh, I think it's, they, I think they said it was uh, nearly impossible to predict revenue on a quarter by quarter basis. And so what are you investing in here? It's a very difficult without that sort of visibility, I suppose. Julia? What was, what was the stat you gave us about Dogecoin? Just say that again. Two thirds attributed to Dogecoin in the second quarter. Yeah, I think that needs reiterating to to your point about difficulty of foreseeing uh, future flows. 
Um, what did they have to say about payment for order flow? Because the way that their business model works and what allows them to offer zero fees is that they give a lot of the trades to market makers to try and do the trades for them and obviously minimize the costs associated with that. What did they have to say about that, Anna? Because that does feel important too. And I guess a key question, having just mentioned the point about Dogecoin again, what are they doing in crypto to try and offset some of that? Well, they're shrugging off concerns pretty much across the board here. They say they're not focused on profitability yet. You know, they are focused on putting more money into products, into services, into new talent. And to that point, they're very excited about the launch of a new product, which is the, the crypto wallet. They've got a short list already of one million users. It's going to be rolled out with a soft launch in the coming weeks. It won't be readily available to next year. But it was interesting on the earnings call that the questions, which are given in a very egalitarian measure, you get to vote on them. And the top one was, when are you going to add more coins to it? We want bigger range. You've only had, uh, you haven't added a new coin for two years now. And are you going to add Shiba Inu? And to that end, they said, well, they're very aware of regulation. And so really, it was a wait and see. And I don't think that's going to do anything for the share price today or for driving up you know, active users in the coming months to make that fourth quarter better than this one. Yeah, particularly when some of their competitors out there had a relatively good quarter by comparison. So uh, it's a case of watch this space. I think investors waiting and seeing here. And uh, as we <laughs> no said, one likes watch this space, do they? Julia? No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, how unfortunate. Particularly when it takes a whole quarter. But as we pointed out, crypto activity has picked up. Yada yada yada. So yes, understood. Throw the dice. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes, understood. Mm. Thank you so much for that. A virtual one in crypto land. Yes. Basketball star Enes Kanter is not backing down from his criticism of China. The Boston Celtics Center is issuing a personal challenge to the founder and longtime head of Nike for staying silent about depression in China against weaker minorities. As Stephen Jiang reports. In his latest video message, Kanter not only mentioned Phil Knight, the longtime head of Nike, but also NBA legends and Nike ambassadors LeBron James and Michael Jordan, challenging all of them to go to China in person to check out under what conditions Nike shoes are being made. Now, Kanter, of course, is trying to shine a spotlight on this issue we have been covering for a long time, that is, uh, allegations of widespread abuse and ill treatment of the Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in Western China, including allegations of forced labor. The U.S. government has assessed up to two million of them have been sent to internment camps in this country. Now, Beijing, of course, has denied all those allegations. But one of the uh, uh, Cantor's hashtags this time was hypocrite Nike. That really illustrates how a growing number of multinational companies and institutions are caught between upholding values and principles they claim to hold dear back at home and not to running afoul of the Chinese government and this country's increasingly nationalistic consumers in a very lucrative market. And NBA, of course, has been in this kind of trouble before. Just two years ago, Houston Rockets then general manager tweeted in support of Hong Kong's pro-democracy protesters. And shortly after that, their games being blacked out here and sponsors pulling out in this country. And this time around, Celtics games have been pulled from the video side of Tencent, the Chinese tech giant that holds the uh, uh, digital broadcast rights to NBA games in this country. But the official response has been more muted, probably because uh, the country is counting down to the Winter Olympics here in Beijing. And officials are very much aware the whole world is watching how they handle the fallout when politics and sports clash. Stephen Zhang, CNN, Beijing. 
And just to be clear, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs responded to the allegations by saying that Cantor was trying to get attention and that his remarks were not worth refuting. In March, Nike issued a statement maintaining that it is committed to ethical manufacturing and does not source products from the Xinjiang Uyghur region. Okay, stay with First Move for more on this story too. I'll be speaking to the man who created Cantor's free China shoes, the dissident Chinese-Australian artist Badia Tao. He's coming up later on in the show. For now, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Protesters took to the streets of Sudan again to denounce Monday's military coup, even as the country's top general defended the takeover. The country's main airport, meanwhile, is set to reopen in the next few hours. On Tuesday, the civilian prime minister was reportedly allowed to return home a day after the military detained him. A chaotic scene in Ecuador as police used tear gas to break up the crowd of protesters in the capital. Five officers were injured in the demonstrations against the president's economic policies, particularly a recent decision to raise fuel prices. A district attorney in New Mexico is not ruling out criminal charges over the deadly shooting on the set of the film Rust. One person was killed and another injured after actor Alec Baldwin fired a prop gun. Officials are holding a news conference on the case later today. China is 100 days away from hosting the Winter Olympics, but celebrations have been muted due to the growing COVID outbreak. Some cities are facing tighter restrictions, including Beijing, where most of the games will be held. The vice mayor says containing the virus will be the capital's biggest challenge as the host city. Okay, still to come here on First Move, why your next Uber might be a Tesla and it's all down to a deal with Hertz. I'll bring you clarity after the break along with both CEOs. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move this Wednesday. The Bulls hoping for yet another effervescent day of trading as Coca-Cola raises its annual guidance. Coke, just one of a number of huge U.S. consumer brands reporting results. McDonald's posting strong international sales numbers. And Carmaker GM navigating supply chain challenges to beating on the sales line and assuring investors that full-year results will come in at the high end of forecasts. Now, this week, we reported on a massive order for Tesla supplying 100,000 vehicles to the rental giant Hertz. Half of those cars are going to be available for Uber drivers to rent by 2023. Drivers are being offered Tesla rentals in four U.S. cities for $334 a week, and that includes insurance and basic maintenance. A nationwide rollout is planned after that. Uber itself has committed to a green path, saying it will be a zero-emission platform by 2040. That means all rides will be in emission-free vehicles. And in the United States, Canada and European cities, that zero-emissions target is 10 years earlier by 2030. I'm pleased to say Dara Khosrowshahi is Uber CEO. Mark Fields is the interim CEO at Hertz, and they both join us now. Dara, great to have you with us. Mark, the same. Welcome to the show. Um, Mark, I want to begin with you and talk about this two deals, actually, that you've announced today. Um, the Uber deal, I think, helps you monetize the Teslas that you've announced you've uh, purchased this week. The Kavana deal, too, that you also announced this day with the online sales giant helps you ensure the resale route, I think, for some of these cars. Talk us through what you've been up to. Yes, well, overall, this all ladders up to our strategy of wanting to become a essential component of the modern mobility ecosystem. And so 
all of these partnerships kind of reinforce that. And to your point, uh, the Carvana uh, relationship, this is very important to us because when you think about a rental car company, the three biggest uh, operations are buying vehicles, deploying them, and then disposing them or exiting from your fleet. And with the Carvana uh, relationship, this allows us to access their digital platform and gives us another retail outlet to sell our vehicles. And importantly, on the deploy piece of our business, that's that's why we're so excited uh, for the relationship with uh, Uber and Dara's team on helping to accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles and sustainable technology and transportation. Yeah, and Dara, come in here because, you know, you talked to us last time you were on the show about the importance of becoming a fully electric mobility platform in, in North America and Europe. Let's talk that specifically by 2030. But you were also, and in this statement, you again reiterate that adoption of electric vehicles is expensive and we need to tackle that. Talk to me about the pricing and the economics of this deal, because surely you've got to make it somewhere near equivalent to what your drivers are paying today for a traditional fuel-driven car. Definitely. And and affordability. Once you get over the affordability hump, I think uh, the cars are just terrific. The experience is terrific. And I think everyone wants to play their part uh, in terms of helping uh, uh, the environment and being sustainable. These cars, in terms of renting from Hertz, are essentially as available as uh, gas power cars. So actually someone who rents a Tesla on uh, through Hertz not only gets a benefit of the affordability of $300 rental on a, on a weekly basis, uh, but also they get bonuses of a dollar a ride extra that they are making up to $4,000 uh, per year because they are driving a green car and an electric car. This is our way of pushing the economics and kind of tilting the economics a little bit in, in favor of sustainability, which is something we should do. And I think other companies have to join in as well. Dara, very quickly, what percentage of your drivers rent? Do, do you have that stat? Um, the have? percentage is less than 10% as far as uh, the percentage that rent. But the average driver who rents actually drives more hours, drives more miles. So this is the most effective way of us putting a single vehicle on the road and having that vehicle cover maximal miles. Yeah, I think that that differential is, is really important. Mark, you know, when I look at the Uber drivers that I see in the road and here in New York, you can identify them by the number plate, number plate which um, which helps. Um, they're not high-end cars. They're uh, Toyota Camrys. They're, they're Honda Civics. Those are the ones that I see most on the road here. Um, you know, if I look at how much I could lease one of those cars for, sort of $70 a week, talk to me about the rental. And it still feels, and it again come back, comes back to the economics of being able to afford to rent a Tesla vehicle at, at the prices that we're talking about here relative to some of the other options out there. It's that jump and convincing them of the economics. Well, I think overall, as Dara mentioned, you know, the benefits to the Uber drivers are first, they first off, they get to drive in a terrific vehicle. So there's some value around that for the You're driver. willing to pay for that, and you're secondly, saying. And secondly, they have the opportunity. Excuse me? You're willing to pay for that, you're saying. Yeah, there, there's a bit of a premium there because they're terrific vehicles to drive and they're helping the environment. And that's important to a lot of folks, including Uber drivers. But then, as Dara mentioned, they also have the opportunity to, to, to earn more money than driving an internal combustion engine vehicle. And from our standpoint, from Hertz, there's 
listen, there's benefits on both sides for each company. And that is so key for any partnership. And we love this exclusive partnership with, uh, uh, with Uber and Dara's team. But there's equal benefits, obviously, from a driver standpoint, from a company standpoint, from Uber's standpoint, and from, and from Hertz's standpoint in terms of it allows us to use our fleet uh, utilization more. Uh, it's good economics for us. And it positions us well, ultimately, for an autonomous world. I think it's so important that we understand. Yeah, come in, Dara, please. If, if uh, anytime, listen, renting a car on a weekly basis is always going to be more expensive than right. leasing a car. It's less of a commitment. The rental with Hertz, the program with Hertz actually includes insurance. It includes maintenance. So for us, it's also a really easy way for a driver to try out driving. Maybe try out uh, a, a Tesla, see what it's like. Are the bonuses in terms of uh, the dollars that you're bringing in worthwhile? Is it easy to get charged up, et cetera? One of the biggest bridges that we see in terms of people making the jump to electric vehicles is it's a big jump. What's it going to be like? So this is an open doorway for our uh, driver uh, community to try it. And I think, you know, if you've been in a Tesla, I have. Once you try it, you want to buy it. Uh, and that's what this is all about. <laughs> is that a problem, though, Mark? If you if you try it and then you want to buy it, assuming that you're going to rent this thing on a long term basis, then the economics of leasing come back into play, surely. Well, you know, we're in the business of uh, renting vehicles. Uh, at the end of its life, we sell them. Uh, but I think, you know, Dara makes a really important point when you think of it from a driver's perspective. As you mentioned, this includes uh, basic service. It includes insurance. And, you know, as the other piece of this is also, you know, the higher order piece of trying to make sure that we accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles across the, across the, across the globe. And you have many products coming, electric vehicle products coming uh, in the marketplace, not only from Tesla. And as Dara mentioned, when you get in one and when you drive one, you're three times as more likely to buy one. So I think that'll be good for our respective businesses. But importantly, I think it'll be good for the planet. Um, Dara, you'd be giving away secrets if you told me how many drivers you currently have in the United States. But how confident are you? But feel free to tell me if you want to. Um, how confident are you that you have 50,000 drivers in the United States that will be using these cars when all are available in 2023? Oh, we're, we're quite confident. We, we actually have other electric cars on the network and consistently we see uh, significant demand for these kinds of cars. I think, listen, people, people wanna help. Uh, I've always said that clim uh, climate change is a team sport. Uh, and our drivers want help. So we do think that based on the demand that we've seen uh, for electric vehicles on our network, uh, and Tesla obviously is a great brand, it's a great product. I think if we put uh, make Teslas available, there'll be plenty of takers. <laughs> Good to know. Um, and, Mark, and, you're obviously and, making and huge I, changes I, over I, at, I, Go on. I, you can testify I would just to add that. that. that you know, part of our <laughs> yeah. agreement Part of our agreement is uh, that if this program is uh, is successful, and we believe it, we believe it will, that over the next three years, uh, this could grow to up to 150,000 Teslas that can be uh, provided by Hertz to Uber as well. So so far, I've only seen 100,000 announced as the deal with Tesla. Are you saying that you're going to go back to Tesla and say, hey, we'll take more Teslas depending on what demand looks like? Absolutely. This, uh, 
this uh, commitment of if the Uber uh, program and when it's successful are up to 150,000 vehicles, clearly that will be reflected in our future orders from Tesla, just as we'll, you know, order from uh, other OEMs that are going to be providing electric vehicles to the marketplace. Um, it's been called so far on that point a sort of four, four and a half billion dollar deal, which is 100,000 cars times the sort of base price of, of the Model 3. Please tell me you got a discount. And did you add the self-driving capabilities with those cars as well? Well, I won't go into the specifics of what the actual cost was in the, the overall purchase with Tesla. I'd only uh, mention that, listen, at the end of the day, these things have to have positive economic benefits for the company at Hertz. And it does. And in terms of your second question, uh, these will not include the self-driving feature uh, on the vehicles that we we offer to the Uber drivers. But is that an option going forward? Just very quickly. Well, for right now, we're we're starting the the program with not offering it, uh, and we'll go from there. But for right now, uh, it will not be an option on the vehicle. Reserve the right to change your mind in the future. I understand. Um, Dara, let's talk more broadly, because I think you have been very passionate about saying that we have to find ways wherever we are in the world, not just in the United States, to work on the economics here, allow people greater access to what remains a very expensive relative car for many people around the world. Where are you seeing geographically nations getting this right, promoting the ability to try and afford and, and subsidize these cars? And what more do you want to see as we head into COP26? crucial discussions. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we're definitely seeing cities in Europe make positive moves. And either they're giving certain rights to electric vehicles, uh, special lanes. Uh, sometimes they have congestion charges related to the congestion that your car uh, uh, causes, which, again, tilt the economics in a way where you're taking the damage, let's say you're doing to the environment in a traditional uh, combustion engine into account, which is what you need to do in order to, again, make the economics uh, favor EV. So we think those kinds of policies that price into, uh, that price sustainability into the economics of either car ownership or in Tesla uh, or in Uber's case, the revenue that you can bring in, we've already leaned into there. Those are the kind of policies that we that we want to see going forward. And fortunately, those policies are happening. I think the one area where we want to see more activity in is charging. A lot of people take for granted having a garage where they can charge a car or living in a building that has uh, chargers in there. For our driver community, we need chargers more in the outskirts of town where they where they live. Uh, and more more general availability for those who may not have a garage or may not uh, live in a big building. That is something that we're having dialogue with with many, many cities around the world. Yeah, and that's critical for your Uber drivers as well that are going to be renting these Tesla vehicles. Where Where is my charging capacity and where am I going to be able to do this as I'm driving around on uh, on jobs? It's a critical point. Mark, your views on this more broadly? Well, as part... Yeah, as part of our announcement earlier this week on our Tesla purchase, we also announced a major investment in charging infrastructure. And it's not only in the infrastructure on airport, that's obviously very important to us, but we have many off airport locations that are in suburban areas, literally in in cities all over the the country. Um, And so by the end of 2022, we're going to be in 65 markets with over 3,000 Uh, charging locations that the Uber drivers can use. And by the following year, we'll be in over 100 markets. 
At the same time, you know, the, the drivers will also have access to the over 3,000 locations of Tesla superchargers that are across the country. So you make it a really important point, right? The charging infrastructure is absolutely crucial to getting the adoption of electric vehicles and getting consumers through that that pain point, if you will, where they're going to charge. So that's an important piece of our strategy. Cleaning up our cities car by car. Guys, great to chat to you. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on and sharing your time with us this morning and the details of this deal. The Uber CEO there, Dara Khosrowshahi, Mark Fields, interim CEO at Hertz. Gentlemen, thank you again. Great to chat to you. Thank you. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. A mixed open for U.S. stocks amid a veritable flood of Q3 results from corporate America. The bulk of today's earnings coming in market friendly. The Dow and the S&P pulling back a little from record highs. In the meantime, shares of trading app Robinhood, as we've already discussed, down over 11 percent after warning that user growth and engagement are slowing. Facebook is under pressure for a second straight session. The Wall Street Journal says the U.S. Federal Trade Commission is looking into the damaging revelations included in the Facebook papers on whether the company violated a 2019 privacy settlement. They're down just three-tenths of one percent, as you can see there. Okay, NBA star Enes Kanter says Nike's too scared to stand up to China. And to underline that message, he wore these customized shoes on Monday. Modern day slavery and no more excuses are references to the reported use of slave labor in the Xinjiang province. Cantor's protests have led to Chinese authorities blacking out his team's games. His protests are unorthodox. At their heart are shoes like these, customized to send a message to the Chinese state. Their creator is a Chinese-Australian artist and dissident whose identity was a secret until 2019. A secret no more. Joining us is Badiou Tao. He's Chinese political cartoonist, artist and rights activist. It is a huge pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making time. Talk to me about the decision to create these shoes and the message that you were intending to send. Um, thank you for having me here. Uh, it's a absolutely pleasure and an honor to working with Ernest uh, Canton on this very special project. I think if we want to deliver a message that about human rights in China to America, sports game is definitely the biggest and most important platform that we can use. And among all those sports, NBA is definitely the burr on the crown. So with this collaboration, um, we really get all the attention from the world, from America, that we're sending a very clear information about our concern of China's human rights abuse against Tibetans, Uyghurs, and Chinese ourselves. Um, I think, uh, well, for ANS2 to, to actually helping on this project, to initiate this project, it's something very valuable and, and brave. I mean, you're sending a message and we're talking about it. The United States is talking about it. As I mentioned in the introduction, the, the game itself was actually blocked in China. Um, how do you feel that having been born there yourself and having decided to leave, that, that the Chinese people don't get to see your art, they don't get to see the message that you're sending. In fact, what, what they hear is the Chinese government's version of whatever the truth is, or, or not at all in this case. 
Well, I think what the Chinese government trying to do is building a wall to block all the information that we've been able to discuss in the free world. However, I don't think there's any wall is absolutely um, cannot be infiltrated. A great news like this uh, must find its way back in China as well. Even though the Chinese government has, you know, stopping the broadcast of of Celtics game and and you know uh, there are kind of smear campaign against him and me constantly however this very gesture of blocking and censorship will make people question it, even inside of China uh, because of of course they want to hijack the narrative they want to twist our information however I believe there are still people even inside of China are interested in knowing the things different and see the things in a different perspective. So a lot of them while using methods like VPN to go around the censorship, which we call the Great Firewall, and eventually be able to access to the information they're not supposed to know. You know, you're an artist and it's in your blood. Your grandfather was also an artist, your great uncle too, and, and your family lost them you know what the cost can be of, of being a dissident in China and, and raising your voice. Does it frighten you what you're doing or do you consider that you're far enough away to be safe doing this? I think to be honest that we have to face this reality that China has been very aggressive, which means even though I'm not located in China anymore, that I'm still being subject to all sorts of death threats um, and the risks and dangers all the time. However, I think fear is a choice that we have to understand the dangerous, but we can choose to be brave. We can choose to not to be owned by those threats. Um, that's very important that I think more people to join me, to maybe inspire by my art and, and campaign like this, so that more people would helping me to deliver the message, but also share the risk together. You, and we've been sharing your art, Free Uyghurs, Free China, Free Tibet. You've also got an art show coming up in Italy and I, we can show some of the art that's going to appear there. You've got unofficial 2022 Beijing posters as well ahead of the Winter Olympics. Again, as we head towards that, what do you want people to see and to understand? And they're very graphic images. We're showing one now of... Um, a skater attacking a Tibetan monk. Um, mm -hmm. Very emotive, some of these pictures. What do you want people to feel as they see them? I think art is a great uh, a vehicle to convey the most important issues of our current world. And the, the motivation behind me to create art is sending this message to the people inside of China, as well as to the people outside of China, to building a better understanding of what Chinese government means and, and what's the difference between Chinese and Chinese government and China. It's a very important message that the people have to understand. Um, what I am doing here has nothing to against my own people, Chinese, and all the criticism is very precisely against Chinese government because it is not a democrat elect, elected government. It does not have the rights to represent my people, the Chinese people. Well, however, in this uh, exhibition in, in Brescia, that in Italy, we have received numerous of the threats 
um, from uh, the uh, Chinese embassy in in Italy and from like uh, propaganda news outlets like CGTN uh, online. But uh, uh, I think I'm really grateful and happy to seeing the uh, British government, the uh, uh, British Museum Foundation, and uh, the very gallery Museum Santa Julia is totally supporting my advocation for the freedom of speech and I have great, great solidarity with them. And I think it's very important that actually in the Western society that we realize how aggressive the Chinese government has become and it's very important for us to form a alliance to show in the solidarity with the people who want to speak against the Chinese government based on all the facts. Yeah, I think your message there when I asked you why you aren't frightened, we have to be brave. We have to stand up for what's right as individuals and as governments. When we see something wrong, we have to say it. Thank you for being brave and for joining us today. And fingers crossed that art event goes ahead. We look forward to it. Come back and talk to us soon, what? please, and stay safe. Thank you. Okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Marketplace Europe is next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.